Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22? Now, as we said before, let me just say one more time, we uh, are in Matthew 22. We find ourselves right in the middle of the final week of his life before the cross. In fact, we're just about maybe two days from the cross at this point. And as we have pointed out, the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, they are determined to try to trick Jesus into saying something they can use against him in a Roman court of law, have him arrested and crucified. So they keep coming at him in waves and with these trick questions, and he keeps with the wisdom of God answering them, and they, they can't catch him at all. They slink away, and another group comes. So the Pharisees have just come to try to get him to give his input on the greatest commandment of all the uh, law of God, and we talked about that last time we met, and while they were still standing here, we pick it up in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, now they've come to try to catch him with a trick question, he answers the question, they can't get him, so now he turns the tables and asks them, saying in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Well, the whole passage hinges on the question Jesus posed to the Pharisees. Let me just simplify it. Who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? Now, I don't know if you realize this, but all four of the world's main religions are looking for a Christ to come to the earth who will end all wars, all injustice, all hunger, heal all disease, and basically bring the earth into a paradise state. Hindus and their Western counterparts, the New Agers, are looking for the coming of what they call Maitreya Buddha, who will be the next reincarnation of the Christ Spirit. You see, they believe that Jesus was the reincarnation of the Christ Spirit for this present age, this, the Piscean Age, whereas Maitreya Buddha will be the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit for the new age that is coming, the age of Aquarius. And they believe that when he comes, he's going to bring the world into a complete state of enlightenment, and mankind at that point will make a, um, a quantum leap in the evolutionary process to godhood, except for those who are monotheists. See, I mean, New Agers, if you ever read anything by Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, they believe that the world is a living thing, the earth, and uh, people on the earth are cells. And anyone who, who does not believe that they are part of the God collective, Okay, that someday they will evolve to Godhood, well, you're just flat-out selfish. You're just flat-out selfish because you're a cancer cell in an health, otherwise healthy body. And so what will happen is they say, we have to take care of these people. We have to get rid of them, just like you would get rid of cancer cells in the human body. It's going to be healthy. But don't worry, we're doing them a favor by killing them. What do you mean? Well, they'll just come back, re reincarnate back on the earth, this time more evolved, more enlightened. They'll go with the program. So killing folks is going to be a good thing if their Christ is the real Christ, okay, uh, and so on. That's what they believe. 
Shiite Muslims, of course, are waiting for the coming of their Messiah, or Mahdi, whom they believe will be the 12th Imam. And uh, the Shiites, according to their religion, believe that the 12th Imam disappeared uh, in the, as a child in the year 941 A.D. And he's coming again. He's going to return. And they believe when he does, he will reign on the earth for seven years before bringing about the final judgment of the world. Now, here's something interesting. They believe that their Messiah, the Mahdi, is going to bring with him Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be his lieutenant, his enforcer, who will fight against all the enemies of Allah. And who do you think those are going to be primarily? Jews and Christians, that's right. All right. So Jesus, they believe, is going to fight against, he was a Muslim, by the way, uh, Jesus is going to fight against Jews and Christians primarily, but anybody who stands in the way of Islamicizing the world where you could have peace and prosperity, because that's what Islamic teaching believes, that there won't be true peace on earth until the whole world is Islamicized, which is kind of fascinating to me, because in areas of the world where there's only Muslims, they're always fighting with each other. So I'm not sure how that, if you just make everybody a Muslim on the face of the earth, they're all going to get along uh, all of a sudden. But that's what they believe. And in their holy writings, they believe that Jesus will come with them and as an as enforcer to wipe out all the enemies of Allah and establish this kingdom of, of universal peace. Well, the Jews, of course, are looking for their Jewish Messiah, the one promised to them by God in their holy scriptures, the Tanakh, our Old Testament. And when he comes, the Jews believe he's going to conquer all of Israel's enemies. He's going to establish a kingdom on the earth, at which time all war will cease, disease uh, will be cured, hunger and poverty will uh, cease to exist or come to an end. And the world is going to enter into a glorious uh, golden age, uh, what they call the kingdom age, where Messiah will reign from uh, Jerusalem visibly over the whole earth, and the Jews will be his prime ministers. And lastly, of course, Christians are looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ, whom we believe is the true Messiah and Savior of mankind. And we believe, like the Jewish people, because we're reading the same scriptures. I mean, their Tanakh is our Old Testament. So we believe, like the Jewish people, that when the Messiah comes, he is going to establish a kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. We call it the millennial kingdom. But his kingdom will never end. The thousand years will end, but we'll move into the eternal state where Jesus Christ will reign forever. I think it's just interesting, though, that the people of this world, most of the people of this world, okay, those four main religions cover most of the people in the world. Most of the people in this world are ripe to receive a global leader who will unite the world and bring about peace. So the question, who is the Christ? And by that I mean, who is the one and only true Christ is a very important one. Especially when you remember that Jesus himself went on to warn us in Matthew 24 that many false Christs would come in the last days having supernatural powers to work miracles that would deceive millions. Of course, Jesus said, this will lead up to the coming of an ultimate deceiver, whom we know as the Antichrist. And this man is going to be possessed by Satan himself. And he is going to have supernatural charisma and uh, intelligence and power to work all kinds of lying signs and wonders, all kinds of miracles that are designed to deceive. Second Thessalonians 2, uh, 9 through 11 tells us, and when he appears on the scene, the earth is going to be in such chaos and such turmoil. Why? We don't know. It could be a total economic collapse of the world system, banking system. It could be uh, the result of some kind of uh, war. But when he shows up, the world will be in such a dire place 
that the people of this world, he's not going to take power by military means. He'll become a military dictator later on. But initially, the world will see him as a Messiah-like figure because he'll have supernatural intelligence, you know, wisdom, charisma, and power. And they will see him as a Messiah and thrust him into power and get behind him as he establishes a global government. However, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that when the people of this world say, ah, oh, peace and safety, you know, oh, finally, here we are. It's the new age. I mean, finally, the, the utopia we had been looking forward to is here. But Paul says, when they say peace and safety, the people of this world, then God's judgment will fall on them suddenly, and they will not escape. They will not escape. So the passage before us this morning is of the utmost importance. Let's begin by focusing on the first point of my message, which I'm calling the supreme question. Again, verse 42. Jesus said to the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this is the, in my mind, the supreme question when it comes to understanding and therefore believing in the one and only true Christ. Will he be the son of a man or will he be the son of God? Now, we know the true Christ is Jesus Christ. And it's very important that a person understands who Jesus really is if they're going to become a Christian. Is he a son of a man or will he be the son of God? Now, why am I calling that the supreme question? Well, because Jesus himself told us. In fact, turn to John 8. In John 8, we see a blistering confrontation between Jesus and these same Pharisees. I mean, it got really heated. I mean, they called him a bastard child, because that was the rumor ever since Mary had delivered Jesus that he wasn't virgin born. She had an affair with some guy in the, in the village, and he was a bastard child. So he, they called him illegitimate. He called them children of the devil. So it got pretty heated. You can read it for yourself, all right? But he said to them at one point, he said in verse 23, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, in other words, you'll go to hell for eternity, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, do you notice in your, transla your, uh, in your Bibles that the word he there is in italics, which means it's not really in the Greek. The translators added it thinking they were clarifying the passage. Uh, sometimes that kind of thing does. Other times it does not. Here, it, can, it messes the passage up. What he actually said to them is, if you don't believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Now, I am, guys, is the name of God. When God told Moses to go to the children of Israel because he wanted to, let, uh, he wanted to deliver them out of the bondage of Egypt, Moses said, Lord, I don't even know your name. Who should I tell them is sending me? And what did he say? He said, tell them I am is sending you. The name of God. And what Jesus is telling us here, and this is one of two essential doctrines for salvation. Jesus is saying, if you don't believe that I am the Jehovah God. In other words, I, we, we know him as the second person of the Trinity, part of the one true Godhead, right? He is saying, and I'll paraphrase, unless you believe that I am almighty Jehovah God, you're going to die in your sins and spend eternity in hell. Now that is one of two doctrines that are essential to get to heaven. 
The other one is believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which Paul said, anyone who confesses Jesus with their mouth and believes in their heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead shall be saved. Conversely, if you don't believe those things, if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Christ, you're not going to be saved. So that's where the cults attack one or both of those things. Satan knows that most people aren't going to be atheists in this world. He knows that by nature we have been created with a God-shaped void in our heart, and only God can fill that void. Of course, man doesn't know who the true and living God really is, so they search all over the place for some God. But the idea is that Satan does his best work through religion. People want to believe in something, he'll give them something to believe in. But it's lies, okay? And he will attack the deity of Christ. Oh, some, the cults, some of them say, well, he is a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God, the JWs. Mormons say, oh, yeah, well, he, you know, he ascended to Godhood because he lived the perfect life and so on. But he was the brother of Lucifer, a creation of God. The cults attack the divinity of Christ, that he is the one and only true God, and the bodily resurrection of Christ. Because both of those are essential for salvation. So that's why I say this question, who is the Christ, is extremely the supreme question. Because you can believe in a Jesus with all your heart, but if he's not the Jesus of the Bible, he's not going to save you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, many come with a false Jesus in a different gospel. He said, beware, the devil is behind all that. you got to stick to the scriptures and what the scriptures say about Jesus and what he said about himself, obviously. So, the supreme question leads then to the second point, the standard response. And in verse 42, after Jesus asked them, who is the Christ? What do you think? Whose son is he? What did they say? The Pharisees said to him, he is the son of David. That's who we believe he's going to be, the son of David. Now, the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' question, listen, was the standard belief held by the Jewish people as to whom the Messiah would be when he finally came to the earth. They believed Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Why did they believe that? Because God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that Messiah would be one of his descendants. But like David, he was going to be a man. That's what they believed. He was not going to be the son of God. And so the Pharisees here give Jesus the standard Jewish response to who the Messiah was going to be. Now, as our culture, our country has moved from more of a Christian country to more and more of a you know, post-Christian country. We see the rise of atheism. We see many people now uh, not really understanding who Jesus is. We're seeing that this is the response, I think, is becoming more and more the standard response for people in our culture today when you ask them, well, who was Jesus? More and more we're getting answers like, well, I think he was a good man. Um, that has influenced our Western culture. Others say, oh, I think he might have been a prophet. Some, I think he was a great philosopher. Others, I think he was the greatest teacher who ever lived. A good man, a great man, but just a man, that's all. Not the Son of God. Well, verse 43, Jesus said to the Pharisees, when they said to him, well, he's just going to be a man, son of David. Then Jesus said to them, well, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, Jesus doesn't argue with these guys. He simply appeals to the scriptures. And here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. All Jews knew this. And Jesus quotes from verse 1. And listen, every Orthodox scholar, Jewish scholar interpreted 
This to refer to, verse 1 of Psalm 110, every Orthodox Jewish scholar interpreted this to refer to the Messiah. Because who but the Messiah could sit at God, Yahweh, or in this passage we know he's talking about God the Father. Uh, who else but Messiah could sit at the Father's right hand? Now, we know one thing, Jesus believed in the uh, accuracy and the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures because he said, and this is not just the only place, there's many other places that Jesus alluded to this, but uh, here he said, David spoke these words how? In the Spirit. So Jesus was acknowledging that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote these things down. Who's he talking to? Pharisees. The Pharisees were ultra-Orthodox. They were ultra-conservative. All right, And Jesus knew the Pharisees would never dare question the authority and accuracy of the Scriptures, which meant they were caught now on the horns of a dilemma. All right, And they knew it. When Jesus said, if Messiah is David's son, how then could Messiah also be David's Lord? He had him. Because they lived in a strong patriarchal society. And as such... The son always called his father Lord, but the father never called his son Lord. The father was always greater than his children. He was greater in age, which meant he was wiser. He was greater in authority because he was their father. So it was typical for Jewish children to call their father Lord, but the father never called his children Lord. So when Jesus points out here, well, then if Messiah is going to be David's son. How does David call him Lord? They were baffled. I mean, they were baffled. They did not have an answer they could come up with to solve what now in their minds is an apparent contradiction of Scripture. They were baffled, stumped. And let me say this, we would have to agree that the problem was unsolvable. Listen, if you believe that Jesus Christ was just a man, if you believe that Jesus Christ was just a man, I will admit this is a problem, given the Jewish culture. However, the problem is easily solved if you understand and believe that Jesus was both the son of David, in other words, a man, but he was also the son of God, second person of the Trinity, and therefore as God, he was, of course, greater in authority than David, and so therefore David rightly called him Lord. The fact that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Now listen, he was not half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. I don't get that. That's, uh, that's a matter of faith. We don't fully comprehend that, but we believe it's true because the Bible says it is. That Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. The theologians call that the hyperstatic union. The question is, why couldn't the Messiah be just a man? Why did he have to be the God-man? Well, that's an excellent question, all right? Why did Jesus have to be a man, first of all? Uh, well, because God is absolutely holy and righteous, and sin had to be paid for. Some people think, well, why didn't God just forgive Adam? Why, why, does, why didn't Jesus have to come? Why couldn't God just say, all right, you blew it, I forgive you? Because that's how we would do it. But we're not God. God in his infinite holiness, justice, and righteousness, sin has to be paid for. All sin. God can't sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened. It has to be paid for. Now here's the thing. 
Because a man blew it for us, Adam, a man had to redeem us. Say, I don't get that. Well, God devotes a lot of time to that principle. In fact, a whole book called the book of Ruth, in that it had to be a, a kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew is Goel. For somebody to redeem a member of their family, excuse me, for a person to redeem an, another human being, they had to be a member of their family in Jewish law, which God laid down. So if Adam blew it for the human race, uh, a kinsman redeemer had to come to redeem us. The problem is everybody born after Adam was born with sin on their souls, and you, a sinner can't redeem sinners. That's why it had to be God, because only God could have been born. Uh, as Jesus was, uh, through a virgin birth, right? Since the sin passed from the Father to his children, the fact that Jesus didn't have an earthly father, his father was God the Father. He was born without original sin, and being God, he was the only one who could live a sinless life. And therefore he went to the cross as the God-man and died in our place. That's why it had to be. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. And yet you still have people that believe that Jesus Christ, you know, was a great religious teacher, was a great moral leader, and yet they reject everything he taught about himself and salvation. You know, you go out in the street and you begin to ask people, as I said earlier, you know, you just begin to ask people, you know, what used to be a given? I mean, in our country 50 years ago, you ask people who Jesus Christ was, they give you the right answer. Today, we're living in a very strange time. I mean, people's thinking, it's all the years that Satan has indoctrinated people with Eastern mysticism and occultism and so on and so forth, that people's minds, they don't know what to even think anymore. And they've rejected the Bible for the most part, so now they're left to guess, okay? But if you go out into the street and ask people, well, who's Jesus Christ? Again, you'll have people tell you, well, I believe he was a great religious teacher sent here by God to teach us spiritual truth. Oh, okay. Well, do you believe that he was God in human form? Well, I think we're all on the road to godhood. I mean, I believe that we're all uh, being enlightened and approaching God consciousness and etc., etc. Very new agey. Well, do you believe that he is the savior of the world? That he came to save us from our sin? Most people would say, well, you know, I really don't believe in sin. I mean, I, I really don't believe there's any really ultimate right or wrong. It's, all, it's what, you, you know, whatever's right for you, see? Uh, but no, I don't really think we're sinners and so on. Well, do you believe that he's the only way to heaven? No, I believe there are many roads that lead to heaven. Just as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere, you're going to get there. I mean, when people say things like this, and yet they've already said Jesus is a great teacher, one of the greatest teachers that have ever lived, and yet they reject everything he said about himself, that he's God, about salvation, and so on. In my mind, I want to say, and I have said, well, then what makes him such a great teacher? You reject everything he taught, basically. Now, it was C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, who said either Jesus Christ was liar or lunatic, or he was Lord. The son of the living God. And that's the only choices you have. Let's look at that for a second. Maybe Jesus Christ was a liar. Well, why does somebody lie? They lie to get some kind of advantage. They lie to, uh, you know, ingratiate themselves to people who can help them in some way. Uh, people lie to benefit themselves. Well, everything Jesus taught put him at odds with uh, the leadership of Israel and actually worked uh, to condemn him. 
I mean, his words did not ingratiate him with people. They condemned him because he said what they didn't want to hear. So I can't see why he was a liar. In fact, Jesus himself said, I only speak what the Father speaks, and his words are always truth. Jesus Christ always spoke truth. So he wasn't a liar. How about a lunatic? Okay, maybe he was a lunatic. Well, we would have to admit that he made some pretty outrageous claims about himself. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Jesus said at one point to Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live again. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some people would probably attribute statements like that to a person who was not, you know, uh, wasn't in full possession of their faculties. But listen to me. Jesus didn't just make outrageous claims about himself. He then backed those claims up with miracles, which not only reinforced his claims of deity, but listen to me, they also separated him from the rest of humanity. I mean, what other religious leader in history do you know of? that ever did, did the things that Jesus did. I mean, think about it. I mean, did Buddha ever feed thousands with just five loaves and two fish? Did Confucius ever calm the sea and the wind with just a word? Did Muhammad ever raise the dead? And who have you ever heard of, whether religious or non-religious, whoever said that soon I'm going to be crucified and in three days I'm going to rise again and then did it? you think about it, his whole ministry was on the line. When you say, look, in just a short time, I'm going to be hung on a cross, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to come back to life. I mean, your whole ministry is on the line, isn't it? Because now people have something empirical to judge your whole ministry by. If you don't rise from the dead on the third day, everything you've ever taught and did has been written off now. But of course, we know on that third day, he stepped from that tomb alive. That confirmed everything he said about himself Amen. and everything he did. He said to his disciples at one point, if you don't believe who I am because of the words I speak, then believe me because of the works that I do. They testify to who I am. I mean, any person in history, any other person of history who would have made claims like Jesus did, we, we would think he was a madman, all right? You know, look at a guy like Gandhi. Can you imagine Gandhi saying, I am the resurrection and the life? He who believes in me, though, I die, uh, though he dies, shall live. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Can you imagine a guy like George Washington, father of our nation, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. I mean, anybody else who makes claims like that, we would instantly write off as the ravings of a madman. Jesus makes those claims, and they fit. Why? Because everything about him spoke truth. Everything he did testified to who he was. Now, we've looked at the supreme question, the standard response, the scriptural appeal. Let's finish by looking at the silence of the critics. Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus quieted or silenced his critics in one of two ways, either through the silence of confusion or through the silence of conversion. That was it. The silence of confusion, of course, was due to those who had hard hearts, like the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. Hearts that were so hard they refused to believe who Jesus simply proclaimed himself to be. 
And because they refused to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, they refused to receive him as Lord and Savior. And when a person does not receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God does not come in them. The Spirit of truth, who will lead them into all truth and open their, their understanding to what God has said in his word. Look, you have very, these guys were the scholars of that time. You have liberal scholars today, theologians, who know the words of the Bible. But when they try to interpret those words and teach those words, they come across as confusing. They come across as, obviously, to those of us who have the Spirit inside of us, we see right through that. That these are the teachings of people who are not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14, The natural man, the unsaved person, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are foolishness to him. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. And the idea is that unbelievers can read the scriptures, but they can't really interact with the scriptures. They can't really understand. You can read them, yes. Understand them, no. And you can always see this when you talk to somebody who's an unbeliever, yet they've read the Bible. Notice how they interpret things. You ever notice that? How it's just like, wow, you got that out of that? Okay. I mean, I had a buddy years ago when I first got saved, he was still unsaved. He tried to tell me that, Having an affair with a neighbor was simply loving your neighbor. I think I said something like, get behind me, Satan. I, I can't remember exactly, but something to that effect. But, but, but you see, you know, and, I, and I've seen these liberal professors. Now we're talking professors of theology. And I've seen the way they handle the Bible, and I'm just, I just, I'm shocked how messed up they are in their interpretation because they don't have the Holy Spirit. I go down to our Sunday school class right now and talk to our kids. They wouldn't know all the big theological terms, but they know who Jesus is. They know how to get saved. They can give you the gospel. Where these other, you know, so-called intellectuals, because they don't have the Holy Spirit within them, they are confused. And here Jesus silences his critics with the silence of confusion. Why? Because they simply didn't want to accept what he was saying. That's all it is. I mean, God wants you to understand his word. God wants to enlighten your mind as to what he has said. But you have to have a heart that's willing to receive. And that brings us to the second group that Jesus silenced. He silenced many through the silence of conversion. And by that I simply mean they did have an open heart. They did receive what he was saying and were converted. And they were made silent because they had the answer. If you have the answer finally, I mean... People will search their entire life looking for the answer to life. It's Jesus, who is life, right? And once you have Jesus, you know, your questions have been silenced. You know why you're here. You know where you're going. You know who Jesus Christ is. You know your eternity. You know, you don't have any more questions in that regard. Now, as Christians, we, ha we have questions many times as to, Lord, wh what are you doing here? I mean... How are you working in this situation? I don't understand. And sometimes he'll show you. Other times you just say, trust me. But the big questions, we don't have those questions anymore. They've been answered. Jesus is the answer. Now, let me just bring this to a close by uh, making this personal. And that's the main thing. Uh, Jesus Christ is always pressing upon us that we need to make our faith personal. You remember in Matthew 16, 
how he and his disciples were up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And at one point he turns to them. And let me paraphrase. He said to them, guys, what's the word on the street as to who people think I am? Oh, well, you know, word in the street is you're Jeremiah, John the Baptist, uh, you know, Elijah, one of the other prophets. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what anybody else says I am. Who do you say that I am? Remember the passage we just quoted earlier out of John 11? When Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, died, he had two sisters, Mary, Mary and Martha, lived in a town called Bethany. And of course, when Lazarus got very sick, uh, the girls dispatched uh, messengers to say to, Je- to get Jesus to come because Lazarus was near death. Jesus waits a couple days, makes a two-day journey to Bethany, but this time Lazarus has been dead for four days in the tomb. Dead and buried for four days. Martha gets word that he's coming, so she runs out to meet the Lord, falls on her face at his feet and says, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, Martha, your brother's going to live again. And she said, oh, I know, Lord, at the resurrection of the last day. Isn't it funny our faith is always future? We have faith for the future. We just don't have faith for the present oftentimes. Okay? Future, we got that nailed down. We know we're spending eternity, no doubt about it. But it's, it's the present that we have a problem with. Oh, yeah, Lord, I know he's going to be raised again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said, Martha, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live again. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then what did he say? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's either yes, I do, or no, I don't. But Jesus Christ never left this room to take a middle position. He challenged us to make our faith personal. Do you believe this? Now, of course, you talk to many people today about Jesus Christ. What do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yes, they say. Oh, I've always believed in Jesus. (laughs) I've always been a Christian. See, it's always a red flag for me. You You haven't always been a Christian. Well, you weren't born a Christian, okay? So the idea, oh, I've always believed in Jesus. I've always been a Christian. So when they say that to me, I like to use this illustration. Okay, you've heard it before, but just bear with with me. Let's imagine, for the sake of argument, (laughs) uh, and I hope this never happens, but let's just, for the sake of argument, imagine that one Sunday we're all gathered here and we're studying God's Word. When the devil comes walking through the doors, comes down the aisle and says, Pastor, I want to be a member of Calvary Elk Grove. Now sometimes I think he's already joined, but... That's another message. Pastor, I want to be a member of this church. Now, when somebody comes into our church and says, I want to be a member of your church. Okay, let's sit down and let's kind of interview you a little bit. Let's hear what you believe. So imagine we sat the devil down and we began to ask him a series of questions. Like, would anybody who wants to be a member of our church? First one would be something like, well, Satan, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? What would he say? Well, of course. I knew he was the son of God before he ever came to the earth. In fact, the devil's demons testified he was the son of God before people even figured it out. So yes, I believe he's the son of God, certainly. All right, but do you believe he was virgin born? Yes. In fact, I was standing there when Gabriel brought the news to Mary that she had been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah and that she was going to conceive through the Holy Spirit without having physical contact with any man. She was a virgin. And she would conceive and bring forth a son, 
and she was to call his name Jesus. So yes, I believe that Jesus was virgin born. I was there when he was delivered on that night, there in that stable. Yes, absolutely I believe that. All right, would you, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Again, yes. <laughs> I was standing there, <laughs> cheering the people on that put him there. I was, I was standing there, you know, when Jesus was lifted up from the earth and died on that cross. All right. Well, do you believe that three days later he rose from the dead bodily? And again, the devil would say, absolutely. I mean, I was standing there that morning when the angel rolled the stone away and Jesus came from that tomb alive, came forth from that tomb alive. All right. And do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again to establish a kingdom on the earth? Yes, I do. I believe that because I know that God said it to the prophets and he never lies. His word is always truth. So are you saying that you believe the Bible is the word of God, Satan? I absolutely believe it's the word of God. Well, what do we do, folks? Do we let him join? I mean, think about it. He is as orthodox in his faith as anybody in this room. He believes everything we believe about Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that's all that you need to get to heaven. Just believe the facts about Jesus. Well, Satan believes the facts. The demons believe the facts. They were all there to see these things happen. But Satan and his demons are not going to heaven. Why? Because the kind of faith that saves is not passive. It's active. It's a commitment, right? It's a commitment that puts Jesus Christ at the center of your life and receives him into your life as your Lord. That's why Satan is going to hell. Not because he doesn't believe in the facts about Christ, but he's never bowed the knee to Christ and acknowledged him as Lord over his life. He's a rebel at the core. Now, someday, of course, the Bible says every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God. But that will be the day of judgment, and it will be too late for all the people who wait until that time to bow the knee to Jesus. That's why today is the day of salvation. Bow the knee now. Receive Christ now as your Lord and Savior to reign over your life. See, guys, head knowledge never saved anybody. I mean, it's important to believe the facts about Jesus. That's true. But it can't end there. You've got to take it to the next level and say, Lord, I know who you are. I know what you did. And now I bow the knee to you, Lord, acknowledge you as my King and Savior. Come into my life and take control. You know, years ago, there was a missionary. His name was John Payton. And... Um, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And John began to work among the native peoples there to translate their language into, uh, excuse me, translate the scriptures into their language. And as he was doing that, he came across the word faith. And he realized there was nothing in the language of these people that they didn't have a word for faith. That's a pretty important word, right? Now what do you do? You want to communicate the idea of faith, but there's no word in this Language that is equivalent to faith. What do you do? Well, Peyton prayed. And one day, one of the villagers who had run a great distance to bring Peyton a message comes into his hut, falls on one of his chairs, and before he delivers the message says, Oh, it feels so good to put my whole weight on this chair. Peyton says, That's the word. That's the word I'm going to use. Because faith is all about putting our whole life on Jesus, right? It's not adding him to our life. Some people say, you Christians, you know, Jesus is a crutch for you. First of all, if you're crippled, what's wrong with the crutch? 
okay? But Jesus isn't even a crutch. He's a stretcher, okay, for me. I don't, a crutch implies I can do some of it myself. I just need Jesus to help me with the, you know, part of it. A stretcher says, man, you're totally incapacitated. You need somebody to carry you, right? Jesus Christ has to carry us. He is the solid ground upon which we have built our lives. Everything else, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, anyone else is shifting sand. He is the only one that we can build our life upon putting our full weight on him, trusting him with our whole heart, and he will get us to heaven someday. Now, let me just say this to those of you who are saved, because I directed most of this to those who maybe are here this morning and didn't really understand who Jesus was. Jesus Christ is God, who came down into this world to die for us who are sinners. We're all sinners, so he came to die for all mankind. And once you receive him as your Lord and Savior, where does he come to live? In your heart, right? Because he lives in your heart, and he is God Almighty, to whom nothing is impossible, who conquered every foe, he lives in our hearts, and Paul says because of that, if we let him live through us by faith, we become more than conquerors through him who loves us. Why as Christians are we walking around feeling beaten up, defeated, discouraged, when we have the God of the universe living inside of us, Peter said something the angels long, long to look into? I mean, they are in God's presence. They see God face to face. But they have never experienced what it's like to have God live inside of them. We need to understand that this idea of who is the Christ, well, you know, evangelical Christians better get on board. We better start asking ourselves, do we really believe who he is? Of course we do. But then why aren't we living it? Why are we living lives of defeat? Why are we wringing our hands in worries as if because we can't find jobs or we don't know where the money's going to come from to pay the mortgage next month or to buy food for the kids? Why, why is that something we live with when we have the God of the universe in our heart who has promised us to take care of every need, to break every bondage, to give us victory over any area of this world that de the devil can throw at us? We ought to walk out of here with our heads held high instead of hanging low. It dishonors the God of the universe who lives inside of us when we don't take him at his word. When we give him lip service and say, oh, yes, Lord, I believe in you. As Blackaby said, we are conservative in our theology, but we're practical atheists. We had better start believing, especially because the days are getting more evil, more dark. The devil's ramping up his attack more and more. We had better know what we believe. And not just with our heads, we better believe with our whole heart. And every day we better face this world by saying, Lord Jesus, you live inside of me, and by faith I want you to live your life through me. I can't take on this world, Lord. I can't have victory over my flesh. I, I can't, Lord, do anything that you've asked, commanded me to do unless you do it through me. But I'll tell you what, if that's the way we live our lives, then Jesus Christ will make himself strong in our lives. So this is not just a question for unbelievers. Um, I think more than anything else, it's a real question for God's people. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the God of the universe. Amen. Where does he live? In my heart. Amen. Now, go and live like it. Amen? Amen. All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the great and precious promises you've given us, Lord. 
that because Jesus lives in our hearts, reigns over our lives, everything the devil throws at us, Lord, he is a defeated enemy. And Lord, there is no problem so great, no bondage so strong, nothing that, Lord, the flesh, the devil, or the world can throw at us that will keep us down. We are more than conquerors, not because of our strength, but because of him who lives inside of us and who loves us. And so, Lord, we are facing very difficult times. This world is becoming, uh, it's disintegrating before our very eyes. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to keep our eyes on you, that we would continue to walk by faith, that you would live your life through us, that you'd provide every need, give us all the gifts we need to be your servants and do the work you've called us to do. We just praise you, Lord. You are a great and awesome God. You live inside of us. Forgive us for walking around like defeated people. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Remind us of that every day, Lord. And every day we can experience your victory. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.